everybody, and welcome back to The Legal Weekly Wine. It is the first full week in December, and we are off to an incredible start in terms of case law. We have got, as of December 1st, we've got two significant rulings with regard to Donald Trump and his cases. We've got one civil case, one criminal case, and the implications of presidential immunity, rights of and freedoms under First Amendment for free speech, as well as some 14th Amendment thrown in there. I'm Virginia Tarani. I am um, with The Law Unscripted hosting these podcasts. I'm also a full-time practicing attorney in Maryland, D.C. and Virginia. I'm with Tarani Law LLC because you never need a lawyer. Tell you do. do. (laughs) (laughs) And there with me is Dr. John Vile from Middle Tennessee State University. He is the Dean of the Honors College, as well as a preeminent scholar um, in, let's see if I can get them all right, constitutional law, the Constitution, the constitutional amending process, the Founding Fathers, the Constitutional Convention, and First Amendment, Fourth Amendment, you name it, and he's our scholar. So I am thrilled for you to be with us today, especially to talk about First Amendment freedoms and limitations. Welcome back. Good to be here. All right, so we're going to do a quick wine because it is the weekly wine. And um, after Thanksgiving and the start of this final month, I do need some today. Um, I have got an MV Ruby. It's a very distinctive bottle, very nice. Um, It's a good Christmas wine is what I will call it. It's from Mariah Vineyards, um, who we continue to like to buy from in Bealton, Virginia. That's what I have today. I've got one, a special one coming up in the next few weeks before Christmas, but I haven't pulled that one out yet. Um, but that's what I have. Dr. Vile, what are you drinking today? Uh, essence of H2O, purified. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. I'm so glad. Well, cheers to you. And I'm going to get have you start us off um, with these two cases that both came down on December 1st. Yes. Now, neither of them is a Supreme Court decision. So word of the wise, they're not necessarily final, uh, but they're both consequential, Mm. particularly for Donald Trump right now, but more generally for presidential powers and immunities. You know, the Constitution, it's, well, it lists the powers of the presidency, and it lists a lot of checks that, you know, in terms of what the other branches can do. It's not quite as good at specifying what, if any, immunities the president has. You know, what, uh, are there some, when you assume the office, do you get some protection simply because you're in the office? And frankly, there are not that many Supreme Court decisions, Um, That we can reference for it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, There's the the case dealing with, (laughs) presumably your your viewers know the difference between civil and criminal cases. Civil cases are those brought by individuals, usually for monetary damages. Criminal prosecutions are those brought by the state, which usually involve either fines or jail uh, sentences. So there is a case known as uh, Nixon versus Fitzgerald. Uh, 1982 case, which I believe we may have discussed before. A little Nixon, bit. Nixon had been, Nixon had, in my judgment, he had made a political move by firing someone connected to the Air Force who had been criti- critical of him in a congressional hearing. And he basically phased the job out. So the guy lost his job. 
uh, sued on the basis that, you know, this was unfair. And so and he was suing, was, I guess, for monetary damages. And this yes. was not with respect to Watergate, which most of the Nixon issues and cases that's, that's are. That's right. That, that's right. Although the, there's another Watergate case that we should probably discuss. But Nixon versus Fitzgerald, it's a civil case. Mm -hmm. He fellow says, I've been fired illegally. Uh, I ought to get damages from my salary and, and the like. And the court basically said that as long as it's within within the official job, even if it's on the far edges, and, you know, typically a president does have a lot to do with appointments and, yeah. you know, who we can hire and fire and that sort of thing. And so basically, I think the court sort of nodded and said, yes, this was probably unfair. It was probably political. But president has to make all kinds of decisions in the course of his mm -hmm. job. And if he's if he can be sued for, any, you know, one of whatever want to be president, because you, you'd end up with nothing but lawsuits as, you know, study Jimmy Carter. Uh, retiring to do good work, she would be <laughs> hiring <defending> attorneys. <laughs> so there, the court the court said, if it's within your official mm -hmm. job duties, even remotely, we're going to protect you. And it's it's by the way, it's not dissimilar from immunity that would be given to judges uh, or sure. district attorneys or others. Uh, again, e each area has its own nuances, mm -hmm. but essentially, you have immunity for official actions. As uh, president. Absent, yeah, absent, you know, extraordinary circumstances. So in this case, and this is a, a an, an interesting dimension of, of the Trump, we, we, most of the Trump trials right now have focused on the election right. uh, results, uh, whether he engaged, he, he promoted insurrection and the, and the documents. This is a case brought by police officers who were injured, and by members of Congress who say that they were traumatized right. uh, by the events of January 6th. And Nick, uh, Trump says, you know, this is my official job. Um, I have the right to say what I want about election results. Uh, if somebody was hurt, I would have immunity from it. And, and the this, is the, said, this is the civil case currently still pending in D.C. Right. Yeah, this is, okay. let's see, th this is actually, this is, I, I believe we may have discussed the district court case before, uh, although I'm not positive. Th this is a U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. So you have okay. U.S. District Court, Courts of Appeal, Supreme Court. Among the Courts of Appeal, the District of Columbia is... I mean, the, in in theory, they're all equal, but of because of where it is and the kind of cases that it deals with, they deal with a lot of constitutional law cases. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and a lot of, probably more appointments to the Supreme Court from that court than from any other. Right. And this is, so this is the case, and goodness knows, I'm probably not pronouncing it correctly, but this is what, Blasingame versus yeah, Trump? Yeah, Blasingame versus okay. Trump. Uh, and again, it's decided... Both of these two cases we're going to initially discuss were decided on December 1st. This one by a circuit court judge. There were some concurring opinions, but otherwise it appears to be a unanimous decision. Okay. And what's fascinating is apparently what 
we come up with something of a new distinction. Well, I don't know if it's a new distinction, but it's a distinction that hasn't been focused on in this context before. And that is some president, you know, it's unique when you have a sitting president who is running for re-election. Right. And I don't know the ins and outs of this, but I know that in terms of who's charged what, if the president goes president is running for office and he goes to attend a campaign rally, mm. that expense is not supposed to be charged to the government. It's supposed to be charged to his campaign. As an and individual. Even though, even in, though in a campaign mm. event, you may very well talk about public policy issues, defending your own, uh, that doesn't make it, according to this court judge, it doesn't make it an official action. Or is there, they're distinguishing the acts that a president a president running for re-election takes as a campaigner from right. those that he takes as regards his official duties. So he had no he he had no responsibility as president to question election results. <laughs> and so what they're saying uh, is it really is two distinct roles. He is right. he is the president carrying on presidential duties, but those duties do not include Right. The, the judge makes a distinction president. between what he calls an office seeker and an office holder. So he said the charges that the president, you know, when, when the president made the speech on the ellipse and otherwise encouraged people to uh, demonstrate uh, that that was not there was not an official role as president. That was his role as a campaigner seeking to uh get himself back in for another term. So it's, it's sort of a, and one of the, if I understand it here, there's a Trump himself had, had in these lower court decisions had indicated that he was acting in the role of a campaigner. Mm. So, you know, this was part of his campaign. So that undercut his argument that it was therefore an official act. And, you know, what's fascinating is this argument could actually could undercut Biden as much as it would under, you know, who would now be the sitting president sure. running a, as much as it would Trump. But in the immediate context, it's not very good news for Trump. He can be now that the the case, as I understand it, does not decide the case decides whether he has immunity. It doesn't right. decide whether his remarks, whether his campaign l was directly responsible for the events for which he's being sued. It simply allows the suit to go forward by saying right. there's no immunity in here. He right. can be sued for right. these issues. But it, but if it had been decided the other way, then that would have closed down further inquiry. In, well, once it was finally decided by the Supreme Court, it could have cut down it doesn't matter what the facts are. You have immunity. Mm. They're saying you don't have immunity because this isn't office related. This is campaign activity related. Sure. So so with it now, does it go back to the, the district court for D.C.? Does it go further up? I mean, the only further up is. Yeah, I mean, the it, Supreme Court. That's a good question. I, I, I mean, I think it would go if I understand if. If the lower court is waiting to find out whether there is immunity, they can now go forward. But President Trump or former President Trump could also go forward to the Supreme Court and say, 
you know, I believe I do have civil immunity here. Um, now, with the term, I understand that right now the Supreme Court is going through their term and they've been actually reviewing certain cases. Is it too late in this term to add in or would it still be considered if it were to go up? I think it could still be. I, I think they could still, it, although there are many other cases that they could that, that there may be more. I, I think the ones that are most likely to get to the Supreme Court are the cases that involve whether President Trump's name can be kept off the ballot on the basis of the 14th Amendment Section 3 arguments that we've discussed. And what would what would bring about a court decision that the, the Supreme Court would be most likely to intervene if you get conflicting opinions in the lower courts. Right. And I, to this point, I don't think, I, I believe that, remember the last week we or two weeks ago, we, di we discussed a case where they decided that the president wasn't an officer of the United States. And so they let right. it continue. But if you had, if you had a, a rival decision on that, or you have another jurist, you know, Colorado, I believe just a day or two ago, hmm. held a hearing, uh, another hearing on whether the president's name can be kept off the ballot there. Right. That's, now, the, that's their appeal from their district court has now gone up to their appellate court. Right. Right. Uh, and, you know, generally the court's not what the Supreme Court's going to take. It's going to be most concerned about conflicts among appellate courts. Right. Uh, they're going to probably wait till it gets to that stage, but it could. Now, there's another interesting development in Wisconsin this week. Where, right. you know, the the elect the so-called fake electors, I maybe shouldn't say so-called. They were fake electors. The, the the electors who claimed to be legitimate and were not have entered into agreement that Biden did in fact win the Wisconsin election. Yeah, three right. years later. It's, oh my it's goodness! Maybe maybe about time. Right. Well, and that's the thing is, I didn't even realize it was still pending. Where right. the the real electors, I guess, sued the the fake electors right. Right. for potentially, I think it was two hundred thousand each, and they finally settled. Right, it. and they, they they apparently they were far more concerned about establishing a fact than they were in in getting monetary damages. So my understanding is that both sides are happy now. Uh, the the fake electors have said yes we were fake we acknowledge that biden won the election the others said well that's what we wanted more than the money right we wanted the apology more than we wanted the money kind right. of right. idea so so that's happened this last week too yes oh my goodness okay so then let's go back so those are three significant ones now let's go to the other first amendment case for is it awesome? Well, the other say? immunity case. Immunity right? case. Yes. I, I threw us off when I when I got us back into these others, but the, we have one case involving is the president, former president, liable? Does he have immunity from civil prosecution while he was in office? And I mentioned Fitzgerald. Now, there's another. There's another case, Clinton versus Jones, which had decided that. President Clinton was not immune as president from a civil suit that had been brought 
four actions that he took as governor related to sexual harassment. Uh, While he was still governor of Arkansas. Right. And part of that case revolved around, you know, would, would this defer the president, would it detract him too much from his other duties? And basically the court said, well, first of all, you know, one of your formal duties as governor was not to sexually harass people. Right. Uh, but secondly, you know, presumably we're not electing people that they're going to have to worry about this too much. <laughs> that that may have been a little uh, overly optimistic. Uh, but this, you know, this, if it stands, is a, is a fairly important decision. The other decision is a uh, is a district court decision. Uh, and I don't know, do I have a name for that? I think I do. Looking at. United States versus Trump. And uh, which court is this one? This is also D.C., isn't it? Uh, yes, but it's the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. With relation so, to his criminal case. That's right. Okay. So this involves whether um, if if his acts were criminal, and that would mean, for example, if he in fact if his actions in the speech on the ellipse and elsewhere were imminent, were threats of imminent violent action for which he could be prosecuted, you know, does he have immunity from that? And this is an issue, as far as I can tell, has never been decided by a federal court. Really? Uh, In other words, whether a president can be criminally prosecuted for acts that he takes place while, while in office. Now, we in the U.S. versus Nixon case, there was a ruling that the president could not, in a pending criminal or a possible criminal prosecution, although it didn't directly at that time involve him, but if he had information related to criminal prosecutions of members in his administration, that he could be forced to release tapes of conversations that he had had in the Oval Office. So that sort of opened the door to say, you're not immune from providing evidence. Information, sure. But can a president be indicted for actions that they actually took with, you know, illegal actions that they took in office? And this judge says uh, president is liable. Now, again, this does not mean that he's guilty. Right. Um, and but what's what's fascinating is part of part of Trump's argument is that it can't be criminal because it related to speech. And not only this to speech, Amendment but it related issue. to speech on mm-hmm. matters of public import. Um, you know, it's not a just a libel case. It's it's a case where he says that he is. He was genuinely convinced that the election had been stolen. He has the same First Amendment rights that Ramaswamy uh, exercised in the debate a night or two ago, saying uh, he thinks the election has been stolen. Uh, And the court, what the court says is that's a matter still to be determined. Mm. Um, You know, the, the judge is not saying that the president did engage in incitement to illegal or to imminent violent action. But she's saying if he did, that is not part 
of his responsibility as a president. And so therefore, he doesn't have immunity for it. So yet so, another case that says there's a difference between acting as a president and acting as a candidate. Well, in this one, it's it's there's a difference between acting under legal authority, even mm. if it's at the farthest extent, and acting illegally. Okay. Uh, and of course, part of Trump's argument, which is sort of clever, as he's used it before, is that he's effectively been exonerated by the fact that he was impeached but not convicted. Uh, but Through of course, congressional means, right, sure. But the problem with that argument is there are some crimes that might, that there are criminal acts that you could commit that would not necessarily be impeachable offenses. And an impeachment trial is really not a criminal trial. Uh, I mean, it may involve questions as to what you think were illegal activities, but impeachment by itself, according to the Constitution, the only penalty for conviction of impeachment is removal from office and a possible bar to future office if Congress so decides. There's no imprisonment for any kind of impeachment right. and, in and Congress. And so therefore, I mean, one of the arguments he made is the argument, you know, against double jeopardy. You can't be tried for the same uh, crime uh, twice, but basically they're distinguishing a trial in the Senate for impeachable offenses from a regular criminal trial. And, and as the court points out, um, particularly in criminal cases, the standard that has to be established if the president would be fined or imprisoned or otherwise convicted is beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. So they're not they're not waiving that standard for the, you know he has the same right and he has this, you know the, the state has the same obligation to produce evidence in this case as it would in any other. So it's not it's not a slam dunk that because the court has decided he has he doesn't have immunity that he will therefore be convicted. Sure, uh, that, but that's the it, case it would be a slam dunk the other way if if courts all up and down said you simply can't. Uh, prosecute a president for criminal activities apart from impeachment and conviction, mm. uh, then it would have closed the case down. Interesting. And now this case, this is the one with Judge Chutkin. That's right. In D.C. where Jack Smith is the prosecutor, correct? That's right. That's right. Okay. So yes. with that, do you see this one going up to the D.C. Court of Appeals like the civil case did? Well, I mean, he has every right to do it, but again, notice the court that it's going, it'll be going to the same court uh, that just decided he doesn't have immunity from civil prosecution, mm. and you would think that the arguments that would work for one would probably work pretty much for the other. Okay. Uh, now, when it gets to the Supreme Court, that could be a whole different, a whole different matter. Right. So, so let's talk more about the, the First Amendment. So I'm going to draw us to the, the gag order. So we're going to leave okay, the D.C. Court of Appeals. That's a different argument going on, yes. But it's still First Amendment related, where what Trump seems to be saying in almost all of these is, I had a First Amendment freedom to say whatever I want. I'm a campaigner, as you said. I'm a campaigner. I should be able to campaign as diligently as possible. 
Um, and everyone is shutting me down from saying what needs to be said to win my campaign. And this then has bled to the gag order for the New York court in the civil case for the New York fraud. Right. And that one, it took, it took a while, it took a couple of weeks, but yes. the, the appellate court basically in what a two page ruling without any yes. explanation said, no, you don't have the right to say whatever you want. The gag order remains in place. Is, is that accurate? Fairly accurate. I mean, basically, what, looking at the district court judge cases case in the immunity, Trump says this involves speech. And she says, well, so does bribery. Uh, so does blackmail. Oh. So, do, so do conspiracies. Uh, just because there's an element of speech doesn't mean that you can't be prosecuted. Oh, it, I hadn't speech, realized that. In other words, if speech is part of the instrumentality for carrying out illegal activities, then it ceases to be protected speech. Now, there's another interesting argument, by the way. One of the few provisions in the First Amendment that you hardly ever see adjudicated is the petition clause. Uh, you have the right okay, to petition which one is the that? government. Okay. Um, and that's a clause that, that uh, Trump's attorneys trotted out. Uh, and they say, you know, just because you also petition, petition on something doesn't make, doesn't insulate it from, from criminal prosecution. So oh, it's pretty fascinating. No. Okay. So I, I like the comparison to, you know, bribery is also a crime, even though it's speech. It, it reminds me, I've been reviewing a lot of, of case law related to conspiracies Recently, right. and um, it's it's become ever clear that the don't cons- let Jack Smith know he may want to hire you. <laughs> no, <laughs> we are commenting on all of these cases. I want no involvement on either side. This is genuinely okay. nothing, clear. Right? <laughs> nothing. <laughs> First Amendment. What is that? Um, <laughs> conspiracies. I don't know. Um, <laughs> no. So I've done a lot of cases in in my experience with conspiracies, both on the prosecution and defense, and getting into them. There, there's two elements, and one is not the completed crime. The crime itself, through conspiracy, is, conspiracy? is the agreement. Right. Is the discussion, the agreement, the consensus right. of the parties involved, of the co-conspirators to do a crime? Um, right. They don't ever have to complete the crime they're conspiring to commit. They just, the agreement itself is the conspiracy, which is a crime. Now, you have to have an overt act toward it. You have to have some step toward it, toward the completion of the ultimate crime. But that's exactly what you're saying, is the speech is considered a crime so long as it's of a certain nature. So they're not saying in this case, the the appellate court isn't saying the speech is a crime, but they are saying it is subject to a gag order. Right. Well, and again, making, making threats, that may be a little too harsh, but making statements that could put somebody's reputation or life in jeopardy is not considered to be legitimate speech. Mm-hmm. And by the way, there's to complicate it even further, there's been developments in the Georgia case involving the suit against Rudy Giuliani by the 
uh, election workers in which basically, if I understand it, Giuliani has failed to meet the deadlines or to adequately respond. And so therefore he's, as I understand it, pretty much he's going to pay something if he has any money left. This is the civil uh, one. Right. Oh. But I mean, that's very, that's very similar. You can't just you know, if you jeopardize somebody's life by your speech and you do it, you know, in a conscious, you know, consciously, uh, th that's not that's not considered legitimate <laughs> public discourse. Yeah. Well, and that goes to the the other elements of of crimes, whichever crimes they are. It's there are some that are objective standards where a reasonable person would or should have known um, that their speech or their actions would have led to a result. And in thinking of that, it, it really is the conscious disregard of a risk. And in this particular case, the reckless disregard well, of a known risk. I mean, it may even be, it, it's probably actually connected here to either libel or slander. Mm. Um, if, if you're making unwarranted, unsubstantiated allegations about a person, Right. Uh, even if it didn't lead to to possible violence against them or threats of violence, it would it would diminish their reputation in a way that you could sue for. Absolutely. And if you would or should have known of that, then it's considered disregard, reckless or conscious disregard of the risk that another person would be injured, whether it's by reputation or physically or otherwise. Yeah. And if you're Rudy Giuliani, you're, you're going to have a hard time pleading ignorance of the law. Yeah. Former I mean, attorney. as a former prosecutor and presidential attorney. Exactly. And as we've said on the show before, he was the prior prosecutor for RICO violations. Yes. Yes. One of the, the founding, you know, preeminent yes. people. Which he used against primarily against organized crime. Right. Goodness. Okay. So uh, my favorite part of today is I know that you've brought some books. I have. That are going to go toward these topics that we can all dive deep, deep, have a deeper okay. dive in. Well, Tell us what you've brought. Yeah. And even actually, better than one, mine. If people look at our First Amendment encyclopedia, which MTSU has online, I have an essay on, on one. One is a book by Nathan Chapman and Michael McConnell. Uh, they're both law professors. McConnell also was on a judge on the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, writes a lot. Um, has a book called Agreeing to Disagree, mm -hmm. How the Establishment Clause Protects Religious Diversity and Freedom of Conscience. And he makes an argument that, you know, there are two clauses in the First Amendment that deal with religion. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or, or the free ex prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And, and he thinks that the primary purpose of the Establishment Clause is actually to enhance the free exercise clause, provide for diversity, mm. rather than, as in many cases, the court seems to pit the two against one another. And he has some very interesting things to say, particularly about symbolics. Uh, you know, there there have been a lot of a lot of cases. One in Maryland, by the way, the B Bladensburg, uh, the cross case. Oh, the, the burning cross. cross. Yeah, the uh, a huge cross on on a public space. Uh, I believe it was for World War One. It could be World War Two veterans, but uh, veterans of one of the wars has been there for a long time. Okay, not the burning one, the one that's just there. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there were objections by people that the state had involved itself. You know, why is it in the form of a cross? Some of these people may have been Jewish, Muslim, you know, that, that they weren't Hindu. They might not necessarily have been Christians. Um, and they argue, Chapman and McConnell argue, that there's really, they don't like these cases. They mm -hmm. think, you, you probably know about the Pawtucket, Rhode Island case, the, the so-called reindeer case, where... I, I don't. Well, it's the time of year to talk about it. Absolutely. So. Reindeer Christmas? Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the, the case involved a, a town display every Christmas of like in a park or, or public place, they had all these symbols. So you had a reindeer, you had Santa Claus, you had, uh, and then you had a crash. You had uh, Jesus, the baby Jesus, uh, my tie for today. Uh, Excellent. Uh, <laughs> Very appropriate for the day. So the question was, is the state favoring religion by having this crash there? Mm. And the court adopted what some sort of facetiously call the reindeer rule. Well, it's okay because it's the context of the season. Uh, clearly, they're not asking you to worship Rudolph. Uh, and so, you know, you ought to just take it in good cheer. And, and the Chapman and McConnell make a fairly good argument that in most of these cases, there really isn't much of a victim. Mm. Uh, somebody is offended because they see a crash. Turn your head. Mm. Um, sure. And and Christians should do the same thing, right? If you if if you're in a town and you're celebrating, you know, the end of Ramadan because you have a large Muslim host, uh, population, uh, Christians should say, okay, they're acknowledging a holiday of people, you know, that's meaningful to people here, right? Uh, and so I, I think they make a pretty pretty credible case that in many of these just because somebody is expressing offense. Now, very, very different. Uh, and, and it's fascinating that they they believe the court has it right in terms of prayer, public prayer in public schools. Um, you have a right if you're a Catholic uh, not to have your child every day being read to from the King James Version of the Bible if you have another one. Or Sure. Or having an official decide whether you're going to pray in Jesus's name or whether you're not, um, but and, and again, there you have a you basically have a captive audience of people who are underage, uh, whereas you know these others, you know, you see a you, you see a monument, you find out it's on public property, and next thing you do, you you launch a suit that gets all the way to the Supreme Court. Maybe there's just not enough of a uh, concrete uh, injury there that you should be worrying about. Sort of an in interesting perspective. Yeah. But what's, what's fascinating about it, you know, when we talk about establishment, I think I think where they're right, and I think I mentioned, didn't I, a, a book a couple weeks ago by Graber, uh, on the, looking at the origins, how many how many original colonies had establishments? Oh, yes. and what did it mean? And, you know, they point out something similar, which is an established church was a church that you required attendance at, you took up taxes for, uh, you appointed the ministers, all of these, all of these. And that's the primary meaning of the establishment clause. Okay. Not, 
you know, are you offended because you see a, a symbol or whatever? Now, what's fascinating about this is I got a call two or three days ago in a, uh, from a newspaper in Chattanooga asking about a situation in Tennessee. So Governor uh, Bill Lee, uh, who's, uh, I don't know if you'd say he's worn his religion on his sleeve, but he, he's clearly a, 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 you know, a Christian, makes no bones about it. He invited people to the governor's mansion to celebrate, and I forget it. One was the beauty of the 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 beauty of the our lands and something maybe prosperity, and then for the salvation that uh, Jesus has brought to the world. Oh, he included both. Right, and so okay. the what is it? Relit the, the foundation against religion or. I'm getting the terms wrong, but there's a, there's a, if you've seen the advertisements by Ronald Reagan's son uh, about how he's a professed atheist and, you know, we want to, we want to protect you from religion. Um, oh my goodness. They, no, I they basically filed an objection to this. Um, and I was asked to comment on it. And I actually raised the reindeer rule. I said, well, <laughs> In part, of course. <laughs> in part, you know, he does say other things we have to be thankful for. The other complicating factor is, is his house, it's his, it's the governor's mansion, but it's where he lives. Mm. He certainly has a right to say what he wants there. Um, could he have phrased it a little more artfully? Maybe could, could he have said... Uh, and we join Christians who believe that this is the time that Christ came to save the world, as opposed to sort of this is the official imprimatur of uh, of the states, you know, speaking on your behalf. Sure. Um, but it wasn't clear. I, I don't think even they are necessarily suing him, saying uh, that they want him, you know, to retract the invitation. And it's also, I mean, it's it's an invitation to, to visit the, the governor's house. Right. Nobody's required to be there. Uh, and nobody, I, I wouldn't assume necessarily that because somebody attended that they necessarily would have Governor Lee's uh, religious viewpoints. So it's an I invitation, think, you know, not a subpoena. Yeah, it's a, it, that's a great that's a great distinction. That, that's right. He has, uh, although doesn't always work. There some people who are subpoenaed who decide uh, they don't they don't need to come. So. Uh, and that's one I should throw back at you because oh. uh, because I don't know the answer. Um, you know, in the congressional investigation right now, uh, they have subpoenaed, as I understand it, Hunter Biden. Right. And Biden says, well, he will gladly give testimony in public, but he won't do it in private. Which is odd. It is. I mean, it's generally you do have a investigation in private before you go public. Correct. But politically, it's not a very bad move. It's like if you really want to know the truth, I'm willing to tell it to everybody. But if you just want to get me behind closed doors mm. and then say what I said and maybe misinterpret it, I don't want to participate. It's fascinating. So, I don't know that that's a winning legal strategy, but it, but it's it's a fascinating legal strategy. I've never heard it happen. I've never worked with it. It's always been, like you said, the opposite way is people trying yeah. not to be in public versus not wanting to be right. in private. I mean, I, I think it's sort of, 
his attitude is this is a circus investigation, mm. so he's going to treat it like a circus. Um, but well, we'll who see. can blame him? I mean, Trump is standing outside of the the courthouse doors and in the New York fraud case and as his podium, treating yeah. it as his podium and platform. So if he's going to take such a public stance, why shouldn't they? Yeah. In in an, I don't know what will happen. Yeah. But I do think it's it's sort of fascinating. So I talk about another book. Yes, tell us about this other book. Okay. And this is actually a friend you probably remember. Uh Mark Graber at University of Maryland used to oh, coach yeah. trial. Yeah. Uh, scholar and a gentleman. Um and I don't know I don't know if I I think this may have been out for a couple weeks. I like to get them the day that early, <laughs> but it's called punish treason, reward loyalty, the forgotten goals of constitutional reform after the civil war. Mm-hmm. And it's now the, the Chapman McConnell book is a book that you know, it's Oxford university press, but a, a person could pick it up and read it. Who's not an expert. Right. And I think get some things out of it. This one is, is a pretty deep dive, fascinating, uh, every scholar uh, of the 14th Amendment and the Constitution will want to read it, uh, but probably be a little bit harder going for a general reader. But what's fascinating about it, so when you think of the 14th Amendment, there are three, well, four clauses that we almost always think about, and they're all in Section 1. So all persons born or naturalized in the United States are citizens thereof. That meant African-Americans who had been declared by the Dred Scott decision not to be citizens are now declared to be citizens. And then all citizens are entitled to privileges, immunities of U.S. citizens, Mm. equal protection of the law, due process of law. They are, they are probably, they're probably the most litigated portion of the constitution. Uh, Even first amendment cases, if they come at the state level, come through the due process or privileges and immunities clause of the 14th Amendment. So scholars, lawyers focus 90% of their time or better if they deal with the 14th Amendment, they're focused on what's the meaning of Section 1. And also the citizenship clause, you know, does that mean if you cross the border and have a baby here, is your child automatically a citizen of the United States? I think the answer is yes, but there are some who would dispute that. Um, but what's fascinating about Graeber's book, and it's the first of three, I believe, uh, that they plan to do in a series, is he says, well, the most fascinating thing is he says we've missed most of the debates on the subject. Mm. That prior to debates over the 14th Amendment, there were debates over Colorado statehood and other matters in which people discussed what to do, see, the, the, okay, the, the problem at the end of the Civil War is prior to the Civil War, slaves had only counted as three-fifths of a person. Right. Now, that gave a bonus to the South, but it didn't give as big a bonus as if all these people are now free right? and they get greater representation. So here you've, and so the end of the war, immediately at the end of the war, South surrenders, the slaves are freed, but Southern states begin re-electing some of the people who had fought against the United States. They now become governors and and member, you know, would be members of Congress if, if Congress had seated them. 
And so the question is, how are we going to keep these states from reimposing slavery or reimposing peonage hmm. on these people that have been how are we going to assure that loyalists remain in the government and are not faced with a second insurrection and so he says we need to look at the content of sections two through four huh. of the 14th amendment okay and they they you, you know among other things, they would have reduced representation for states that denied the vote to people who were under, uh, to males uh, under the age of uh, 21. Uh, and it deals at least indirectly with the with Section 3 that we have talked about, right. which is excluding insurrectionists uh, from the government. Hmm. Now, there was, and here's where I'm blanking on something. One of these cases that I read or read about, I think it's the Colorado case that we talked about involving the election denial. Right. Uh, Trump's attorneys have made the argument that there's a difference between a riot and an insurrection. Sure. And that the fact that there was a riot does not mean that there was actually an attempt to overthrow the government, which is what Section three of the Fourteenth Amendment deals with, but what's fascinating? What's fascinating about Graeber's books is there. There are at least I have at least two major collections of all the debates surrounding the Fourteenth Amendment. But they say you got to go a year or two earlier, mm. and you'll see that there was a discussion that explains what led up to the proposal of the Fourteenth Amendment. Oh, interesting. So it's 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 really a fascinating book, and great. I mean, Graeber is to be. You know, I read this at this. You know, this ought to be a constitutional book of the year. Uh, it's really, uh, it's very meticulous, uh, and you, you don't expect new ground. Uh, you know, 150 years later, after something's been adopted, but he makes a pretty good case of. You know, he's not making it up. This is what they actually right. said during the during the debates. Huh. So it's, it's pretty fascinating. Well, a very relevant book for the times. Yes, it is. And again, a little, not in, I, I mean, it's, it, it won't be a hard read for a law, prof, a, a law student probably, mm -hmm. but it, for a general public, it, it's, a, it's a little deep. All right. Well, you've given us two options, so that's, yes. that's great. All right. Well, um, we will then all be staying tuned as to what's happening in the Colorado Appellate Court for the 14th yes. Amendment issue, as well as whether the, not the civil one, but the criminal one for in D.C. for Trump, whether that will go up and on appeal. And goodness, yeah, I mean, I guess we're basically staying tuned. And we do want to do a special shout out um, and and remembrance of Sandra oh. Day O'Connor. Um, do you know she was the that. only, can, may I tell a story? Please, please. Got you. So she's probably the only Supreme Court justice I've ever had a meal with. Uh, she came to MTSU uh, to do, uh, I guess it was maybe in connection with Constitution Day, a uh, very well attended event, uh, but I, I got the chance to have supper with her. And one of my poor colleagues, a dear man, uh, who asked a personal, perfectly innocuous question. She had told us, you know, she spends a, put a big emphasis on the fact that she had grown up in Arizona on a big ranch 
Mm-hmm. Uh, she mentioned to us that it was three or 4,000 acres. And he said, well, how many cattle did you have? And she immediately said, well, how much money do you have in the bank? And he said, what? <laughs> and she says, you never ask a rent, you know, if I tell you how many cattle we have, that would tell you how much how much I'm worth. <laughs> and of course, he just stumbled into it. And fortunately, I wasn't <laughs> the one who did it. So I took a little bit more pleasure in it than I should have. Uh, but later consoled him, you know, anybody could have said that. But it was it was interesting. Uh, you know, she was a true rancher, and I guess maybe a rancher would take objection if you ask a, a question like that. He certainly didn't mean it to be personal, but right. otherwise, she, I mean, she was a very gracious person. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I know, I think you have told me sometimes you you get a little bogged down in her decisions because she tends to make very fine distinctions. But I think what you're seeing there. And maybe we want to have more of this. Uh, it used to be that people on the Supreme Court were often chosen from, they were former governors mm. or legislators. You know, she was the first, I believe, Speaker of the House or whatever the term was for the Arizona legislature. And she knew how to compromise. Right. And, you know, the heroes on the court are not the compromisers. The heroes are the Scalia's and the Ginsburg, you know, the people who can turn a turn a good phrase and maybe, you know, stab you in the back while they're doing it. Right. As they smile. Uh, but that may not be as good for, you know, it, it may overly polarize. She was sort of always looking for a middle ground. Mm. And, you know, it's it's nice to have a Supreme Court where you can't, where you don't know in advance how they're going to decide on an issue. Sure. And, you know, you, you maybe as a litigant, you feel like you have a little bit fairer playing yes. field if you don't think is, you know, you're not going to say the wrong word and automatically they're going to say, well, I have to vote for the right or I have to vote for the left. Right. And I think that is something that she provided on the court. Uh, and, of course, she was, you know, the first the first, first woman female. to be there. And she was very, you know, she was very cognizant that, you know, she dare not blow it. You know, she, she needed to, she needed to do really good work so that there wouldn't be any hesitation. And, and you know, we got what three, I believe women on the Supreme court today. Um, you know, that's a testament to, to the fact that I, I don't think people think, you know, that much about it anymore. Right. Uh, which is, which is a good thing in my judgment. Right. Well, thank you for joining me again. Such a lovely discussion, as as uh, Dr. Vile said off camera before we started. What a wonderful day to talk about constitutional law. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yet another day. Every day is a good day as soon as we can do that, and especially together. So thank you very much for joining me. You're welcome. And everyone, we will catch you next week on the Legal Weekly Wine.